New York Times, the Daily News. It comes down to reality, and it's fine with me 'cause I've let it slide. I don't care if it's Chinatown or Rock Riverside. I don't have any reason left them all behind. I'm in a New York state of mind. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill. A little bit of New York state of mind. Oh my, they are in a mess up there, aren't they? Well, our hearts go out to them. Even though they're acting like children, their leadership anyway.、Uh, what do you do? I mean, you're the president, so basically you're the father、uh, of the country at this point in time, and half the country hates your guts and doesn't want to accept you. Well, I'm sure a lot of us as parents have known that feeling and have tried to figure out how to respond to it.、Uh, I think that in a crisis, when you're trying to assist and help your children. And they're being nasty and ugly and mean. Do you get mad at them and smack them around, or do you back up and be more accepting and and loving and uh, 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 parental in a positive sort of way? It, it's hard to do. You know, it's not easy. I'm sure that all of us have had times in our lives when we have been short with our children when they really didn't deserve it because the circumstances were overwhelming.、Uh, they don't have the emotional ability or reserve to. Handle the situation, and so it's up to us to back up, take a deep breath, stay calm, not get emotionally、uh, involved or upset. But you know, it's it's not always easy. I mean, occasionally every parent has their moments when they say enough, and、uh, so the president has snapped a little bit. But I think that he's rebounded nicely and is is showing his magnanimity. And、uh, as I told one of the guys at the hospital when we were discussing Obama. He's a black doctor, and he was saying, you know, regardless that his mother was white, he lived the life of a black man every day of his life, and so he knew the the racism and the prejudices that that were inherent in our society, and gradually they're they're dissipating and waning. That's good,、uh, but、uh, you know that had to cloud his, or not cloud, but had to influence his outlook and judgment as president. And I said, yeah, but Reg. When you're president, you're president of all the people. So, you know, we expect that Trump will have his moments of emotional、uh, shortness, but that he will still be magnanimous and see the greater good here for all of the people. And I think he's doing that. And you know, we have Como, Governor Como, yelling for more ventilators as if they grow on trees. And people say, "Well, you've got thousands of them in 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 storage. Well, what are you going to do?" You're going to just pull them out of storage and send them to be used. These things may have been sitting there for years. They have to be checked out to make sure they work. So you have to have biomedical engineers and technicians to check them out. They don't grow on trees either. Then you got to sterilize them. You got to ship them. So you need trucks. You need manpower. And you know you're talking、uh, a supply chain, a big deal. I mean, this is this is not easy. Uh, yeah, we do have ventilators in storage. I see them sitting around the hospital back in biomedical engineering. Some of them have been sitting there for a decade, 
you want me to take that and put that on a patient without it even checking it out? I mean, I don't even know if it works. <clears throat> so we've got a big task ahead of us in order to meet the demands of New York State and the other big cities and, and uh, the high population, dense population areas, which are going to be affected by this. And we're, we're just getting on to the steep part of the curve in many parts of the country. So this is, this is far from over. Talking with my neighbors last night, we had a six-foot-apart uh, driveway drink and, and yak, little socialization, a couple of beers, you know, just relaxing and cooling it. And, you know, listening to them, they really don't understand, and I don't think many people really can fully understand and appreciate. You have to be in the healthcare profession. You have to have some uh, some basic knowledge of, of medicine and science, and, and you have to have done the research to see what this really is. Uh, this is not an easy situation. And, you know, I, I didn't uh, get upset with, with my neighbors because they would ask me a question and then they'd move right on to something else. And to me, it was a seemingly a really important question, something that needed to be answered and addressed immediately. But for them, it was just like conversation, you know, like, uh, what would you have for dinner? So I, I understand that this is not, not something that most people are going to be able to get their arms around in, in a short period of time. And I understand that it is frightening for a lot of people. They'd rather not think about it. So then what happens? Well, again, we have to step in and we have to be or we have to have a parenting role in society as physicians, as uh, political leaders, as uh, nurses and healthcare providers. We have to step in and provide a parenting role. That doesn't mean that I'm your parent. And don't get me confused with your with your mom and dad, because I don't know if you like them or not. I didn't care too much for my father. Loved him, but didn't like him as a human human being. So uh, I, I think that we have to uh, defer, and whether we like the president or not, we have to defer to his judgment because he's in a position to have the most knowledge and the most uh, uh, comprehensive overview of what's going on and how to delegate and relegate responsibility and resources. And this is this is a tough thing. And, you know, it's not perfect. And the word fair uh, is something that may very well exist in law. It may very well exist in uh, the girls dictionary, but in the boys dictionary, the word fair doesn't exist. You know, things are not always fair. Oh, by the way, I got to read this to you. We got a letter uh, that gives us free passage, doctors and nurses, of the hospitals handing the this out. It says it's defined by 42 U.S. Code 5195SC, the appropriately credentialed bearer of this communication, that's me, is certified as a Tier 1 essential critical infrastructure worker. Wow. Granted priority access, right of passage, and exemption from shelter-in-place requirements in order to perform his or her duty. Dude, that's probably the, the most awesome letter I've ever received from the hospital. Most of the time I get letters that I'm delinquent on my charts or I need to see the administrator because I said something inappropriately. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I get something that really uh, makes me feel important and special. Doc, you've always been important and special, even without a letter. 
You don't need a letter. Believe me. I don't need a letter. Now. Well, thank God for that. <laughs> so I got I to gotta tell you, my sister, I called her last week. Um, she texted me and asked how we were faring, my older sister, who's generally been able to maintain her cool when it comes to Trump. But, oh, my God, she went ballistic. And she went after Trump, and she said he called the whole thing the coronavirus a hoax in his speech in South Carolina, I think it was February 29th. I said, oh, Jackie, he did not. Come on. Yes, he did. And I'm not going to argue with you. And I heard it. And and she got me. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going into politics with you. And she hung up on me. So now I've got two sisters that are not talking to me anymore, at least for the short term. My baby sister, she will still talk to me and text me every few months when she, I guess, has had enough to drink or whatever. <laughs> she can deal with <clears throat> with the political differences. Then I get the same thing from Mike, my engineer draftsman, who's who drew up the plans for our house and uh, for the office building re- renovations and for the sign, if I can ever get him off his butt and get him to finish the damn sign uh, drawing so I can get him to the city and get a permit and put our new LED sign out in front of the office building. And he said, well, Trump called it a hoax. He called the coronavirus a hoax. I said, Mike, you are so full of it. And uh, I know he's listening today because that's what he does on Sunday mornings. He listens to the show and then he calls me later and he'll uh, he'll kind of play with me a little bit. And I said, dude, go look it up yourself. Go go listen to the whole speech. Well, he texted me uh, uh, a link to a Snopes article. The Snopes are uh, one of these websites that digs into political accuracy and inaccuracies. And actually, I was right. The president didn't call the the pandemic a hoax. He called the Democrats' response to it a hoax. And they're accusing him of being uh, lax or tardy or ineffective, a hoax, which they did and they have been. And, you know, we still have to realize they're our fellow countrymen and we got to take care of them and we have to do what we have to do. Yeah, there's times I'd like to say, don't send any ventilators to New York, especially New York City. I mean, any city that that elects uh, de Blasio, their mayor, you got to wonder what is wrong with these people. But you go to New York and we have family there and you see that they are so insulated and it's so insular. And you would think that the largest city in the nation with the most heterogeneous population would have the greatest uh, variety of, of, of opinions and uh, of uh, uh, politics and religious views and all that. And it's, it's really, it's pretty monolithic. It's surprising. You know, if you put on a Make America Great Again Trump hat, at least back in the summer when we went there last summer, if you wore that down the street, you'd get beat up. You would get beat up in New York City. New Yorkers would gang up on you, and our family said, "said Uncle Billy, don't wear that hat. You'll get hurt." And I said, "Well, I don't plan to. We just bought them at a, at a novelty shop to bring them home and hand them out to neighbors and friends that we uh, know are are faithfuls and uh, enjoy that sort of thing." But you gotta wonder. Still, we have a responsibility. We do. We do. Good parenting requires that we be patient and kind and accepting and consistent. We have to be consistent and we can't always be a hundred percent. And so we have to forgive ourselves and forgive each other. And we have to forgive the president if he snaps a little bit, 
and the demands of parenthood are not easy. And the president is acting in a parenting role. That's what he does. And the doctors and nurses, we do that. I do that all the time. And sometimes patients get their doctors confused with their parents. I'm not your mommy and I'm not your daddy. And I don't want you to transfer your uh, love or your hate for your parents onto me. But I do provide a parenting role to you. And I do say that this is what you need for your own good. Now, my dad, he always told me, and he was a doctor, and he said, Bill, he said, Billy, when the patient is in a crisis, don't scold them. Don't admonish them about bad behavior that may have gotten to them to this point. And I think that there is probably uh, some truth to that depending on how you present it. Now, look, I have a patient. This is a true story. This is just a couple of days ago. I had a patient I consulted on. He came in the hospital with chest pain, coughing, short of breath, and he wasn't sick like with a virus. I didn't think he had uh, COVID or pneumonia, and the chest x-ray was clear and all that. And so uh, worked him up, and I said, look, we're going to do the, the, the uh, 23-hour workup and get you out of here in a hurry because the hospital's not the place you need to be. This is going to be ground zero for the spread of COVID virus once it hits the Pinellas uh, County area as heavily as it's going to. But I said, uh, and I take a history, of course, and I have what's your drinking, has your drinking career coming along? He's a weekend drinker, a couple of beers with the guys when he watches football. How about your smoking? I'm still smoking. And how about your blood pressure? Well, I have high blood pressure, but, you know, I don't have a doctor right now. Why not? Don't you have insurance? Yeah, I got Blue Cross. Well, I've just been, uh, you know, lax. I've, I've been lazy, I guess. So you're smoking. You're not taking your blood pressure medicine. Your blood pressure's through the roof. You're having chest pain. Uh, your heart muscle is thickened up from your blood pressure. Uh, am I supposed to wait until... I'm done with the workup to start talking to you about uh, maybe some lifestyle modifications. Well, I think it's the way that I put it. And I'm like, dude, dude, do you want to live or die? And that's not an admonishment. That's a question. So let's pose it in that in that perspective. And, you know, I keep it light. And then he's, you know, yeah, you're right. I need to quit smoking. And I, I said, look, if you don't have a doctor and we take your insurance, we'll be happy to take you on as a patient. That's, that's okay. We've got plenty of room in the practice, and uh, I want to see you do well. And, you know, he seemed like a reasonably bright guy in his late 50s, early 60s, uh, fully employed, uh, you know, a citizen, uh, productive member of society, not a drunk, not a drug addict, not a bum on the street. And, uh, you know, he deserves the benefits of the hard work that he has put in. And he's got health insurance. Part of those benefits are being able to take care of ourselves by seeking out proper medical care and by utilizing that in a fashion that is appropriate and and helpful. And so I wouldn't call it an admonishment or scolding him, but more of a discussion and more of encourage him encouraging him to join me in providing better health care for him. And and it's going to be primarily through his efforts and not mine. You know, I'm a signpost. 
if you have high blood pressure, I'm the signpost that says, well, you know, there's treatment and here's what I would recommend. Uh, you can go down Avenue A, which are uh, ARBs and ACE inhibitors, or Avenue B, which are beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. Uh, they're both effective first-level drugs. Or if you're black, we like to add a diuretic to the mix early on. But if you're older, we don't want to add the diuretic. We want to do this or that and try to have an open discussion. But there's times also when I have to step in and say, listen, you got to take this because I can see that people, some people, they, they need a different parenting style. Well, think about the president. He's got 300 and what, 20, 30, 40 million people that he's trying to be a parent to. And so everybody needs a little bit different parenting style. The people on the left they want to pitch a fit and fight mom and dad and, uh, you know, carry signs and, and push for their cause. And people on the right want to fall in line and try to do the right thing and, and uh, follow the leader and all that. And somewhere in the middle are most of us. But so what do you do? Well, you, you got a big job there. I mean, it's not easy. I'm, I'm telling you, it took, took me 20, 30 years to learn how to effectively communicate with patients on an individual basis, on a case-by-case -case basis. Imagine doing that times 320 million. I mean, oh my God, Ken, the guy must be losing his mind. I don't know how he holds it together. Um, well, that's uh, that's his job. You know what that's I mean? That's his job. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the unfair thing I thought about the president this week, uh, he was talking about he'd like to see the uh, country back open by Easter. Well, I would like to see the country back open by Easter. Just because he's he's being optimistic doesn't mean he's demanding it. You know what I you know what I'm saying? Yeah, he's not going to open the country back up. I mean, come on, he's just saying, let's be hopeful. It would be nice if we could all get together for Easter, but if we can't, we can't. You know, I think that probably the the thing that really convinced me that this was a crisis is that they canceled the Gulfport Easter egg hunt. <laughs> I mean, I that was, was really. I was upset, man. That, that was, that's almost as bad as canceling the 4th of July. You know, the fireworks down on the beach in Gulfport. Yeah. Gulfport, Florida, is, we got the cutest little town down here. Well, let's hope and we, we have, doesn't go to a 4th of July, you know. Yeah, great events. We'll get there. We'll get there. So uh, well, let's get over the parenting thing. And, you know, I want to tell my sisters, I still love you, and I, I, I hope the best for you. Uh, but, you know, you're letting emotions overwhelm your intellect. And when we do that, when we let emotions take over and overwhelm our intellect, uh, then we're bound to crash into the rocks as we try to navigate through the straits of uh, this this terrible, terrible crisis that we're in. But we're going to be OK. And, you know, as I've said for the past several weeks, th the human race is not going to die out from coronavirus. You know, look. If we lost a million people in the United States to this virus, it's not going to be a big deal. I mean, it's certainly going to affect us emotionally. But, you know, a year from now, two years from now, we're going to be steaming just as, as much as we were before. I mean, you're talking about one third of one percent of the population dying if if in that small event we had a million deaths. The problem is, what if they all happened in six months? What if we had all these people descend on our healthcare facilities and, you know, if there's a death rate of, say, 1% or 2% and uh, let's say 30% of the people who get this virus end up going to the hospital, well, you know, you're, you're talking about 30 million people. We can't take care of you.
We cannot. There, there's not enough resources. There's not enough doctors and nurses. Even if you had all of the ventilators in the world that you needed, you had all the hospital beds, who's going to manage all of these ventilators and all of these patients? Where are we going to get all the medications and all the resources? You know, we already got shortages on a number of things, IV fluids, uh, the Red Cross, which I don't really care for, but they're calling for more blood donations. This is one time when I'll get behind them and say, you go out there and give blood if you can. But, uh, you know, the problem is it, it's much more complex than people realize. You say, well, how long are you going to be on a ventilator? I mean, the average ventilator patient, uh, if you consider the post-operative overnight, as well as the people who have bad respiratory tract infections and the uh, the, the severe ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, where people may be on the ventilator for weeks. The average length on the ventilator is three to five days. You know, the average ventilator uh, case with coronavirus is 21 days. That's that's almost seven times, six times what the average ventilator patient is is requiring of, of time and, and, and effort. So, you know, you can do the math very quickly, very quickly. And it's, it's just not an easy situation. So what happens? Well, then we have to start thinking about rationing. Well, who gets what, when and where? Is this on a first-come, first-served basis? Is this on a need basis? Is this on an age basis? And decisions are going to have to be made. And in a lot of states, there are laws, rules, and regulations in Florida. That's true. There are laws on the books regarding do not resuscitate. Uh, if a patient has a do not resuscitate order on their on their chart that they filled out a living will and a in a DNR form, or if they have a healthcare surrogate and somebody who knows what they want and that's in writing, or even if it's not in writing and it cascades down to uh, first-degree family, spouses, first-degree family members, and then friends, so on and so forth. If they say, well, he doesn't or she doesn't want to be resuscitated, they don't want to be on a ventilator, then the doctors are um, held harmless if we take them off. What if they don't want to? be taken off the ventilator? What if they want to stay on the ventilator and try and live? You're a guy my age, 71, 72. Uh, you're in good health. You're acting like a 50-year-old. You're highly productive, <clears throat> and you don't want to die yet. You got more to offer. And after 21, 22, 23 days on the ventilator, the doctors say, you know, it's hopeless. Handelman's not going to come out of this. His lungs are destroyed by the coronavirus. Well, we know that some people have been on the ventilator 30 days before they get off and they make it. Who gets to stay on the ventilator? Well, I mean, it's, it's pure logic, pure simplistic logic that the first people you're going to have to defend, that we have to defend, that we have to protect, that we have to treat, that we have to make sure that they stay alive at all costs, are the doctors and the nurses and the first responders. I mean, the healthcare workers, if we don't have these folks, the rest of the day is pretty well shot for everybody else who gets this and, and needs to be in the hospital and needs critical care. So the prioritization starts with those who are providing the health care. If mama don't get fed, ain't nobody going to get fed. 
And in this situation, we become the mommies and the daddies, the parents that have to get fed in order to see that there's food on the table for everybody else. And my sisters will pitch a fit. Oh, my baby sister. She'll say, what makes you so special and important? Who do you think you are, Billy? Do you think you're better than me? This isn't a matter of being better as a human being. I've done much worse, much more terrible things than my sisters have. I'll guarantee you that. And if there's a hell, I'll probably go there. But uh, <clears throat> still, I'm high-functioning. I'm a high-functioning doctor, and I'm on the front lines. You know, I know some cardiology. I know some general medicine. I can manage a ventilator. I can intubate people. I know uh, enough pharmacology to know how to uh, prescribe intravenous medications and resuscitate and all that. And, uh, you know, if you think that sacrificing me for somebody else who doesn't have that knowledge or that skill is a, is a smart thing, well, uh, I think you're, you're not thinking straight, guys. You're letting your emotions get in the way. And uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to make decisions as healthcare workers as to who will and who will not get what resources as this uh, heads up the, the uh, logarithmic curve and hits our area. I mean, it's already being done in northern Italy. I'm sure the Chinese did it and uh, the countries and areas where there's a big outbreak and there are limited resources. Well, you know what? Decisions are going to have to be made. And we're going to have to decide, well, is this 95-year-old guy who's led a full life, and uh, even though he's still functional, is is really, really sick, and it doesn't look like he's going to make it off the ventilator, can we just go ahead and, and, and end his life, pull the ventilator, you know, pull the plug, if you want to put it in really crass terms, as we do in the, in the medical world? So that this 71-year-old guy, Dr. Bill Handelman, uh, who is probably going to make it, but he needs the ventilator at least for eight or ten days, and we need him back on the front lines as soon as possible, should we pull the plug on the 95-year-old and give it to the 71-year-old doctor? Well, I mean, listen, I don't care if I live or die. I mean, I've had a great life. I'm so at peace with myself. I'm so comfortable with who I am. And I can't tell you what what a wonderful uh, what a what a full and 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 uh, deep and meaningful life I've had, both positive and negative. The things I've seen, the people I've talked to, the fun that I've had, the tears that I've cried, the the people that I've hurt, and the people that I've made feel good. I mean, it, it's just I've got to travel. I've gotten to eat fine meals and drink fine wine. I've I've known great people and small people, and I've enjoyed talking to everybody from the janitor to to the uh, senators, and uh, it, it's, it's fun. You know, it's been a fun life, and if I died tomorrow, well, you know what? I will die having led a full life, and I have no regrets, but you need me. Unfortunately, or fortunately, you need me, and what are you going to do? I mean, so that's got to be our first priority, and I've been saying that for several weeks, that it's not that the world is going to end. It's not that the country is going to collapse over a million people dying. It's not. It sounds horrible. But come on, it's one-third of one percent of our population. We'll be fine. We'll go on. But you need your first responders. You need your frontline people. 
And I think that we'll have to talk about uh, the ethics of this after we come back from the break. And Ken, what do you think? You think it's time for a little Joe? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, get stuff a cup of coffee and we'll listen to some news. All right, man. I'll be right back. I'm Dr. Bill, your radio MD. And hey, by the way, I need some help. I need somebody who's got a good, high quality, uh, somewhat professional video camera to uh, help me make some some little short films on how to make a simple mask and uh, simple uh, hand sanitizer. So if anybody has any resources they could lend me or they could uh, join me and film some things for me, I would appreciate it. We're at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. I'm Dr. Bill. I'll be right back. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. The billions of dollars headed for hospitals and states as part of the $2.2 trillion coronavirus response bill unfortunately will not solve the critical shortage of protective gowns, gloves, and masks. The Associated Press is reporting that experts say the problem isn't a lack of money, it's that there aren't enough supplies to buy in this country. What's more, the crisis has exposed a fragmented procurement system that's descending into chaos as demand soars for many hospitals. Iran's president lashing out at criticism of his lagging response to the worst coronavirus outbreak in the Middle East, saying he had to weigh protecting the economy while tackling the problem. Hassan Roussani says the government had to consider the effect of a mass quarantine. And U.S.-led coalition forces officially pulling out of an Iraqi military base today near Tehran. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384. 7-2-7-3-8-4-6-4-1-1. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Balance of nature. Changing the world one life at a time. It's like night and day, actually, really. When you take this, you hear all these wonderful parables on the radio, but until you do it, you realize that they know what they're talking about, and it's true, because everything is better, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. So, you know, in fact, a friend of mine called me today, and she said, oh, you just went to Pilates, maybe you're tired, you you don't want to go to lunch. I said, I'm never tired, I take balance of nature. Don't wait to see what getting over 10 servings of whole fruits and vegetables every day can do for you. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order of fruits and veggies. 
Start your journey to better health today by calling 1-800-2468-751 or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code RESULTS. Take AM860, The Answer, with you wherever you go with our mobile app, TheAnswerTampa.com, Alexa, TuneIn, iHeart, and at Radio.com. Jay Sekulow and crew doesn't see anything from the Democrats. And the truth is, even the mainstream media has to admit when they've got no good candidates. they got a communist or Elizabeth Warren who lied about her race to get her promotions. And then Joe Biden who's just going around insulting his supporters. Jay Sekulow, live, afternoons at 5 on AM 860. The Answer. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Patchy fog early, otherwise sunny and very warm today with a high getting up to 87 Tonight, clear to partly cloudy and warm with patchy fog developing late at night, low 69. Patchy fog will continue to the morning tomorrow. Otherwise, Monday will be mostly sunny and warm with a high, again, 87. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Kevin Snyder for AM860, The Answer. I'm in a New York state of mind. And I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Hope everybody's having a good morning. Don't panic. I'm here. I will lead you through this. Hold my hand, and we will make it through the great coronavirus epidemic of, what year is this, 2020? 2020, that's right. 2020. Okay, so some of the questions that we're asking ourselves as this whole thing unfolds is uh, the ethics of who gets treatment and who doesn't, and I was talking about that earlier. And is it ethically uh, insufficient to just focus on survival to hospital discharge? Uh, because then you're going to allocate resources to people who may not be as valuable to society in the future or may not have as much to offer or as long as much longevity, you know, 95 versus a 65-year-old, so on and so forth. So there's some real ethical questions, and there's also legal questions that come into play because uh, there are liability issues uh, for doctors and nurses who, well, doctors and nurses really function under us pretty much, who decide on who gets treatment and who doesn't. And Mike, my uh, my draftsman engineer, he uh, he said, well, you know, I really like that, like after 9-11, this is bringing the country together again. And he's, he's a real left-wing loony, but I'll love him anyway. Uh, and, you know, he's got a good heart and no brain, typical Democrat. Um, but he... Uh, he said that, and uh, he, he said, I hope it's not like after 9-11 where it divided us even more. I said, oh, believe me, this is going to, after this is over, the divisions are going to become so much sharper and so much more uh, uh, virulent and, and spiteful, especially from the left, because who do you think they're going to blame? Who do you think they're going to blame for this? They're going to blame us. We're gonna, they're going to blame the conservatives. That's all right. Go ahead. As long as we get through it, I can take it. I'm tough. I'm rough. So I think that the landscape and the uh, the mantra is changing, by the way. I, you know, the hospital, I told you guys last week or the week before, I can't remember that, I got fussed at for wearing uh, my homemade cloth mask and telling the nurses they need to wear a mask. And the hospital said, no, the nurses aren't supposed to wear a mask unless they're taking care of a patient. Well, now 
when you go in the hospital, by the way, there's only one entrance and they take your temperature and the, the, the people that are testing you and they're asking you the questions. Have you traveled outside the country? Have you been to New York? Have you been around anybody with coronavirus? Are you feeling sick? And they take your temperature and do all that. They have masks and gowns and gloves on as they sit there at the door. And there's a box full of masks there. Now, <laughs> now the mantra has changed now that they have more masks available. Uh, you're not supposed to wear your own mask into the hospital. You're supposed to wear a hospital-authorized mask. And <clears throat> so I'm, I'm kind of giggling to myself. Uh, the, the chief medical officer, Ron, he called me a week and a half ago, I guess, and and fussed at me and told me that I was not supposed to uh, uh, encourage the nurses to wear a mask in the hospital. Hey, you know what? Hospitals are ground zero for spreading the coronavirus because if we get one patient in the ER and they cough all over the place before anybody realizes that they may be uh, transmitting the virus, well, guess what? Most people in the ER are going to walk through that spray at some point unless we have them in isolation in a negative pressure room. And, of course, they're going to carry it to the cafeteria when they go to eat. Now they're shutting down the cafeteria, which is probably a good idea. And so, you know, it's it's going to spread quickly through an environment like that. Well, how do you stop that? You put on a mask. Not only do you practice good hand hygiene, but you put on a mask. This is a respiratory virus. It is spread by aerosolized droplets. And it, it's hard to get people to understand that. They say, well, don't your droplets fall to the ground? Doesn't your snot just fall to the ground when you sneeze? Uh, some of it does, and some of it doesn't. It depends on the size, because when you have enough force behind a sneeze, especially uh, an adult male with a good set of lungs, you can break up those little pieces of mucus into uh, droplets the size of a red blood cell, five microns. Five microns is pretty small, pretty small. And that can float in the air for a good period of time, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And as I've said before, you can be long gone. The person that's spreading the virus can have gone home. They got their groceries and they're gone. And you walk down the aisle 10 minutes later and you walk right through their their spray, their, their micro droplets. And you're, you're at least in contact with the virus, whether or not you become infected we don't know how much of a viral load, how many virions you have to have enter your body before you will get sick, uh, or if you will even get sick with it. <clears throat> but that's how it's spread. And so in a hospital, as I was arguing three weeks ago, uh, you got to put on masks. Well, there was a fear that there wouldn't be enough masks. Now, apparently, we've got masks and masks are being handed out. Thank God for that. <clears throat> and I tell you, if you're going out, if you have to go shopping, if you have to go somewhere and do something, get a mask. Make a mask. You can take a T-shirt, a good, high-quality, uh, tight-knit T-shirt. A poly cotton is better than just cotton. And you can cut an 8x8 or a 9x9 uh, pattern, 9-inch, 8-inch, 7-inch, depending on the size of your face. Make a square. Use two or three plies. Three plies would be better. Or you can use two plies and put a piece of the, uh, of the HEPA filter out of your air conditioning filter, tear that apart, and tear that, that you know, those metal diamonds, that, that ribbing off the back of it, and cut a piece and put that in the middle. 
you can sew it, you can glue it, you can get some hot glue, you can do any number of things, or you can just get some uh, ties and tie the corners together and put that over your face, wrap it around you, get some shoelaces, get some hair bands. If you're going to go out, you need to wear a mask if you're going to be in public. Not only to protect you from the other guy, but if you're carrying it, to protect the other guy or the other gal from you. It's not just a one-way street. And again, I need uh, some help with some video camera equipment temporarily so I can make a video. I'm at 877-969-8600 if anybody has anything. Uh, I was at the station and we're trying to figure out how to get it set up. I've ordered some equipment, but it's not here yet. So we've got a lot going on, and we've talked about the sisterhood and Mike and the left wing and their uh, emotional approach to this whole thing, which is indeed unfortunate. We need to keep our heads and remain cool. The ethics of it are going to come into play, and you say, well, do doctors have the right to make the decision as to who lives and dies? We're doing it anyway. You know, we do it every day. We decide who gets care, and at times when we think it's a hopeless situation, uh, yes, I'll consult with the families, of course. And there are families who will say, we want them off the ventilator now. <clears throat> and I'll say, but there's no uh, living will, there's no do not resuscitate order, and I think that it might be possible that mom or dad might make it through this. Why don't we wait two or three days? And I'll tell them, look, I am not the kind of guy that wants to keep a patient on a ventilator forever and send them to some long-term care hospital in a vegetable state. That's not me, but let's give them a chance for a day or two. There are times when I see that some family members aren't ready to let go, and I need to do some more death counseling with them, or as the Irish say, hang crepe. Uh, back in the old days, when you had a wake for someone who died in Ireland, you'd hang black lace or crepe all over the living room, around the, the ceiling, and then set the body up in the in the uh, in the room, and you you'd have a wake, and everybody would praise and and talk about and laugh about and get drunk with the deceased person who's sitting there in a chair. And then after the wake was over, and everybody had laughed and cried and gotten it out of their system, then you buried that that person, and you took took down that that black uh, material, and so we call that hanging crepe, C R E P E. I think I'm spelling it right. Check that for me, Ken. Google that, buddy. I'll, I'll get right on that, Doc. All right. So, you know, there are times when you have to hang crepe with the family. Now, we're in a crisis mode, so chances are we're not going to be able to do that uh, in this situation. We may have to compress things as it gets worse. And just ask that you be as understanding as you can of the resources that are available and the decisions that we have to make. And as difficult as it is, uh, you just got to hang with us. And they're going to be upset people. They're going to be people who understand. So life or death, we're going to have to guide the medical equipment decisions, uh, who gets what, when, and where. And uh, prioritization can entail some real tough choices. We know that, and we know that there are uh, ethics that are going to come into play. Uh, who's sick and who could recover? Uh, who's sick and who, who do we think will not recover? Who gets the ICU beds? And so we need to make you aware of this, that uh, you may come in and uh, be in dire straits and think that you're not going to make it. 
and we think you will, and we're going to treat you. And you may come in, and you're not too sick, and we know a little bit about what's going to happen. We see the future coming, and we start counseling you about you're probably not going to make it. You know, you're going to die, and uh, we'll do what we can, but we want to know what your wishes are, and we want you to keep in mind that there are limited resources, and we may have to make decisions for you that uh, may not be exactly what you would want. And so the order to not to attempt the resuscitation, the DNR, uh, the medical code of ethics, it's going to have to be tweaked a little bit. And what is my ethical obligation to you uh, to respect you as a patient and your autonomy and your right to self-determination? Well, uh, you know, there's a there's a greater goal here. There's a society. Uh, and at some point, um, I'm not just a patient advocate. I'm a societal advocate. And in these circumstances, that's what uh, we become. So we want everybody to think about that. And we have other resources like uh, ECMO, which is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's like the machine we put you on when you have open heart surgery and we have to paralyze your heart. How do we keep you alive? We put one big needle in a big vein and one big needle in a big artery and we suck the blood out and pump it back in. We run it through a machine that has a pump and it has real thin uh, membrane tubing walls where oxygen and carbon dioxide can go back and forth and we can scrub out some of the uh, some of the bad stuff like the carbon dioxide and the excess acids that build up with our our energy uh, burning and we can keep you alive while we work on your heart well we don't have a whole lot of these machines and the problem with this disease, with coronavirus, is that it attacks the lungs, and the lungs get filled up with uh, debris from the dead cells from being attacked by the viruses that kill the cells, and uh, there's three or four stages that we know the lungs go through now by looking at the CAT scan, and uh, we know when you're getting to the recovery stage, <clears throat> but when you're in the height of it, when you're in the worst part of it, your lungs are not exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide. They're not capable of it. There's too much goop uh, between the little air sacs and the blood vessels that are bringing the blood back from the body to be replenished with oxygen and unload the carbon dioxide. There's, there's too much debris. The gases and the acids and the waste products can't get through that space between the blood vessel and the little air sacs. And so we have to somehow keep you alive. We can do it by using the ventilator with what we call pressure support. We put pressure uh, on the uh, system so that it increases the push of oxygenated uh, gases into your lungs and hopefully pushes it through the debris and it gets to the, uh, to the uh, blood vessels and into the red blood cells. But if, if your lungs are so badly damaged that that doesn't work, then we can use this ECMO machine. But, you know, we don't have many of those. That, that's, that's not really going to come into play. And so you get to the point where you say, well, there's just nothing we can do. I mean, we've tried everything. You're on the ventilator and you're not oxygenating and you're basically brain dead because you don't have oxygen going to your brain. And so what do you do? Well, you know, you're not going to function without a brain. So we'll pull the plug and give that to the next guy or gal. 
So we're going to have to revise our decisions about resuscitation. And, uh, of course, we have to document everything. And in our hospital, in our state, uh, a, a DNR order has to be signed by two physicians, uh, the attending physician and another physician. And they don't necessarily have to be on the case, but they do have to at least go in and examine the patient, look at the chart. Uh, you know that ain't going to happen in all the cases as the crisis deepens. Uh, you know, one doctor's going to say, hey, I got this guy, it's hopeless, and I'm going to say, what What are their O2 sats, and your oxygen saturations are uh, are on the floor, and uh, there's there there's no evidence that they have any brain activity, and I'm going to say, pull it, you know, let's let's do it, give me the form, we'll sign it. And we're going to have to have ethics committees come in and, and uh, help us oversee all of this, too. So we've got a big task coming up. <clears throat> well, how's the virus spreading? Well, the total cases as of yesterday in the United States are, uh, that's verified by testing are 103,000. Total number of deaths, 1,668. So we're looking at a little over 1%, 1.5% mortality rate, maybe 1.6% at this point. And that's the people that we have tested. We don't know how many people actually have the viruses and are carrying the virus and are not sick or just have a little bit of a cold. So the death rate from this is going to be a lot lower than 1%. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just not that we just don't have the data yet. We'll have to look back after this is all over and, and do some studies and see who's got antibodies built up in their bloodstream to the virus who didn't get sick. And that, that will be, uh, you know, that'll be interesting. That'll be uh, a research project, but that's in the future. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of travel related. We've got a lot of uh, contact, contact person to person. The states that are heav most heavily hit at this point are uh, New York and the Seattle region of Washington, D.C., mainly because of the one nursing home out there. The other big states, Florida, Texas, California, Illinois, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, the high population states with the dense populations, uh, they're being hit. And, uh, you know, we're on the upward part of the curve uh, in, in these states, and it, it's going to get worse. You know, there's just no doubt about it. Uh, in the beginning of the year, at the beginning of January, middle, middle of January, we had maybe one or two cases in the country. Uh, I think that the first recorded case in the United States was, uh, let me see what date that was. I've got that here somewhere. At any rate. I believe it was January 22nd, and it was one case. And so we've gone from one case on January 22nd to 100,000, over 100,000 cases as of March. What is this, the 27th, 28th, 29th? Yeah, it's the 29th. So this is, a, this is a, a, an exponential curve. This is going up. Uh, by a power of, of 10, so to speak. So 10 times 10 times 10 times 10. You know, it's really, really taken off. That's the way this works. That's the way it is. Uh, do we need to panic? No, don't panic. It's not worth it. Live your life, but live it within the, uh, the confines of the recommendations and regulations that are being set down by our leadership social distancing, stay at home, uh, restaurants are closed, 
Uh, and again, it, it, heed Dr. Bill and get a mask. Mask will become more and more available. Uh, as this spreads, people will see that wearing a mask is vital. Hong Kong has effectively uh, controlled this not only by social distancing and good hand washing, hand hygiene, but by wearing effective masks. So this is coming and we're going to be okay. Not all of us are going to make it. I mean, some of us are going to die. But, you know, mama didn't give me any guarantees. She never said you're going to live forever. She never said that. Oh, I'm sorry. The first cases recorded by the CDC were on January 14th. Two cases were recorded on January 14th. So January, February, March, what that's two and a half, three months, Ken, by my reckoning. That's really, really taken off. Uh, scary stuff, but we'll be okay. We're going to make it. And I don't want anybody to think that this is the end of the world. It is not. It is not the end of the world. It is the beginning of a new chapter in our history. By the way, in Florida, a physician is the only person licensed by law to issue a do not resuscitate order. While a patient may refuse resuscitation uh, treatment, the patient's refusal is not a medical order. So if you're a 25-year-old female who has overdosed on some medication because you don't want to live anymore and you come in and while you're still awake and alert, you say, I know who I am. I know where I'm at and I don't want to be resuscitated. Hey, if you're, if you're coming in on my shift, that ain't going to happen. You know, I'm not going to assist you in suicide. You will be resuscitated and I will save your life if I can. And, uh, and on the other side of the coin, if I think it's hopeless, and, uh, you know, everybody else is saying you got to keep trying. I mean, there's going to come a point where I'm going to say this is this is just hopeless and we've got to allocate these resources to somebody else. And I'll just have to take the uh, fallout after the crisis is over and we're not going to resuscitate this person. Take them off the ventilator and let's move on. This is going to happen. So what should you do? Well, I would advise anybody who is an adult. Uh, to get a living will and a durable power of attorney and let your your uh, desires be known, whether or not you want to be resuscitated. It's simple to do. You can get them online. The state has a bunch of, of these. The Department of Health has these. Your doctors, the hospitals, you can probably get them at the fire stations. They probably have these things. You can go on your computer and get a living will and a durable power of attorney for health care. Uh, and designate somebody as your health care surrogate so that if you end up on the ventilator with coronavirus and the decision has to be made whether or not to pull you off, uh, that there will be somebody who can speak for you. That's important. So I encourage you to do that. So what's my message this week? Wash your hands. Obey the, the uh, regulations. Social distancing, please. And get a mask. Get a mask. Get a mask. I'm working hard to try and get some uh, industrial production of this going. Uh, but, you know, this is not my area of expertise. And I'm doing what I can. I've got a line on a couple of uh, industrialized factories in the area. And we'll see if we can get something going here as soon as possible. Again, it's easy to make a simple mask. Triple up a bandana and tie that around your head. Do something. Protect yourself. 
Well, towards the end of the show, and I am getting out of here, guys. Love you. Thank you for being with me. I'll see you next week. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD.